this morning, uh, the message is going to look a little different than usual. If you've been tracking with us the last few weeks, you've heard me uh, ask for questions about faith, to solicit questions. Um, standing up here week in and week out, I share a lot about the faith, about the gospel, the word, Jesus. Um, but I recognize that, and maybe this is just my own insecurity speaking, but I recognize that I'm answering a lot of questions, but they might be questions that nobody's asking. Uh, and that's not really helpful. If I'm answering questions that you're like, I'm, uh, that, that doesn't, I'm not really interested in that. Uh, it's going to be easier to tune out. And so I wanted to create space for, to, to have the opportunity to address questions that uh, people really were dying to hear about, to want to know about. And so something that I'd like to do periodically a few times a year is to have a city reach, you know, like FAQ Sunday, you know, frequently asked questions. And so at that time, there's the opportunity to ask all those burning questions about faith or the Lord or the Bible or anything, church, that, you know, maybe you were too nervous or, or anxious to ask about, being like, is there an opportunity? I mean, really, I, I would say I have veto power, of course, uh, but there's nothing that's off the table at this point in time. And so for, for the first iteration of this, for this morning, we had a few people submit a handful of questions, uh, and I picked three of them that I thought could kind of cover a, a, a nice diversity of scope. And, you know, if you say, like, man, I missed my opportunity, don't worry, fret not, we will do this again. I'm looking at maybe November. Um, and so, yeah, keep those, keep those questions coming. Any, anytime anything comes up, drop me an email, drop me a text, I'll add it to the queue. So this morning, our subject matter, I have three questions that we're going to look at. We're going to cover first a little bit of history of, of our church, then we're going to look at what does the Bible have to say about tattoos. And then we're going to spend some time discussing our accuser, Satan. So hopefully I can address these questions clearly, um, fully, succinctly in these short segments so that we can uh, not be here forever. Uh, so let's start with our first question. So the, the, the person asked, why slash how, why and how was City Reach Church Swissvale planted? And then the questioner added the comments, especially because many city churches tend to struggle. So just a little bit about us as a church. So our church was planted by a network that began on the north side of Pittsburgh called the City Reach Network. And their mission was to, they really aggressively planted churches. I, I, I use that word aggressively pretty specifically because they were very, not hostile, but they, they, there was a lot of just force by which their, their church planning prowess. They wanted to plant churches all over the U.S., and they planted about 90-plus churches in about eight or nine years. So that's, that's pretty, uh, it's pretty aggressive church planning. Now, what I really appreciated about that network was that they had a heart to plant these churches in underserved communities. The person who asked the question is absolutely correct, that what my experience has been that urban environments can often be very difficult for churches, for church plants to take root. It's far easier. That's why most of church planning, like there, there's all kind of church planning networks out there. And a, and a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are, are equipping people to go to the suburbs. Because it's a lot easier to go to the suburbs and plant a church there. Suburbs tend to have greater wealth distribution. And so it's easier to become sustainable in the long term. They have more homogene homogeneity. Right? They're, they're like-minded. People act, think, vote alike. So there's, 
there's always going to be conflict, but there's, there's less kind of uh, rough edges to work out. In communities like ours, those of you who live here in Swissvale, Woodland Hills, kind of the, the broader Pittsburgh area, we, we see things like poverty, food deserts. The effects of systemic racism are a little bit more prevalent or are viewed. Gun violence, drug use, underfunded schools. We, we have a diversity on so many different of levels of life that sometimes can make unity difficult to accomplish. You know, our desire here in that, I mean, you're going to have those things everywhere in the U.S., everywhere in the world, but I found that in urban environments, those things tend to be a little bit more prevalent. And our passion is to see Christ's penetrating light and grace transform those elements of the neighborhoods, the communities that we live in. I love the tagline that the network used that we continue to use today. It states, unlikely people in overlooked places to do extraordinary things for God. Right? That was the mission. That was the vision. I don't, I, sometimes I don't know the difference between those two, but that was the, the, the kind of oomph behind the City Reach Network, and it, it continues to be our heart in this church today. Now, City Reach Church Swissville was affiliated with the fir very first church ever planted by that network. About 14 years ago, my dates might be a little bit off. Uh, Elder Mike would be a better one to, uh, you know, correct me if there's some, some, some of my dates are off, because he was here when I wasn't. Uh, but about 14 years ago, roughly, uh, the network planted its first church in the borough of Braddock, City Reach Church Braddock. And the church there met regularly for several years. They rented space. They used the Elks Club, Elks Lodge there. They used the Niapage Community Center for a period of time. Um, and in the midst of utilizing this temporary space, they prayed about having their own building. And so in 2013, St. John's Lutheran Church of Swissvale approached this network about donating, the City Reach Network, about donating their building to this church planting enterprise. Right, they were a, a Lutheran congregation that was dwindling, and they decided they were going to merge with another congregation in Forest Hills. And so they had this building that they wanted to remain a sacred space. And so after much work, you know, bringing the building up to code, again, I wasn't here for any of that, that real hard labor. Mike was. He, I'm sure he can tell you the, the war stories from it. You know, they had to replace the roof. They had to clean, clean out the basement. There was a lot of work they had to do of this place. And that congregation from Braddock largely shifted here for Sunday mornings, and City Reach Church Swissvale was born. Now Braddock for a time, for many years, continued to meet there on a kind of a Friday night church expression, having community dinners, things like that. Um, but the Sunday morning expression shifted here and, and our church was born. Now at this point in time in our history, we're no longer affiliated with the, the City Reach Network. We've been autonomous, we've been on our own for about the last three years, but our mission and our values are the same. Right? We want to see the lost saved. We want to see people come into a life-changing, destiny-altering relationship with Jesus Christ. And we want to see the systems of brokenness in our culture repaired so that we have the opportunity that we can love our neighbor with the fullness of our hearts. We're committed to working in communities like Swissvale. We're committed to working and partnering with um, the school district, like Woodland Hills School District. We know that it is hard to gain momentum in the city, but we're here because, in our perspective, it's not just the privileged in the suburbs who should have ease of access to the gospel. 
Now, there's a lot more to the story. I mean, we're, as Sarah alluded to earlier in the, the service, um, we had a, a leadership team meeting on Thursday, and there's some places where we're reevaluating what are some of our core values. What is the strategy? How are we going to try to accomplish this vision? So there's a whole lot more to the story of who we are that will continue to be unveiled uh, over the next few months. Um, and if you want a deeper dive at some point, let me know. But I wanted to give you know, that like 2,000 foot perspective of who we are and why, kind of why we got here, our inception. So that's the first question. Our next two are, uh, want to definitely dig into the Bible a little bit. They're more uh, theological in nature, what I call practical theology. So practical theology, um, you know, systemic theology, or systematic, excuse me, not systemic, I use that word too much. Systematic theology is kind of like taking what does the Bible have to say about something and, you know, putting it in a, uh, you know, outline, you know, point A, sub point, sub point one, sub point two, right? That's, that's systematic theology. Practical theology is how do we take this information that we've acquired and apply it to our lives? So, um, Here's, here's what the question asked, hey, you know, so how do we understand scripture in our decision-making process? The questioner asked this, what does the Bible say about tattoos and piercings? Now I'll say up front, I'm going to address it very briefly, but the, the Bible doesn't have a ton to say about piercings, so I want to focus more exclusively on the question of tattoos, because I know this can be a point of contention in the church. One of my good friends, is a, he's, a, he's a huge Star Wars fan, you may or may not see him this summer preaching in my absence. But several years ago, uh, he got this kind of artistic, blocky rendition of R2-D2 on his forearm. Now, he got this tattoo in his 30s, and even in his 30s, he was very anxious to tell his parents about it because they were adamantly opposed to tattoos. Now, I, I don't know that his parents would say this necessarily, but my friend was convinced that for them, this issue almost bordered on that, like, lose your salvation kind of issue. And I, don't, I don't think that's what they would affirm, but uh, th that's kind of the level of nerves that he was feeling. So, you know, we live in this culture that celebrates tattoos as body art, as expression. So while people are getting inked up regularly, there is pushback from many people in the church regarding this cultural norm. Why is that? Now, simply put, the conflict comes, I would suggest, because of one, one verse in the Bible. It's in the book of Leviticus. You, a little plug for that Bible reading plan. You would have read it last month if you were following with us. So speaking to the Israelites, Leviticus 19.28 says this. Now, I'm reading from the ESV. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. You, should, you shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Now, this scripture is in the midst of what's called the holiness code. It's a section of scripture, about five or six chapters of the book of Leviticus, that gives the Hebrew people instructions as to how they are supposed to live. Right? God wanted them to live a certain way to honor him. And so a very superficial reading, if you try to read this passage, it's very straightforward. It says, don't cut yourself, don't tattoo yourself. And then, you know, God always throws that, not, not always, often throws that trump card. For I am the Lord, right? Like, I'm telling you to do this. If you believe me and, and you know, hold to my authority, then you're going to listen to me. Now, just to go down a quick rabbit trail of piercings, I promised we were going to get there. Some folks do try to use this passage to, to direct people not to get their bodies pierced, but as you can see from the text, or if you heard from the text, 
there's nothing mentioned about piercing of, of ears or navels or otherwise in the passage. I don't think that any prohibition on body piercing can stem from this passage. Arguably, in Scripture, having your ears or your nose pierced is, is used in a positive connotation quite often. In Ezekiel 16, God is described as adopting, adopting the Hebrew people. And he, he describes the Hebrew people in very anthropomorphic terms, like a, 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 a person that he found, uh, you know, a baby, abandoned, wallowing in its blood on the side of the street. And he, he describes how he adopts it and he cl- cleans that child off. And, and there in Ezekiel 16, it says that he describe, it describes God as adorning this, this child with a crown on their head, a ring in their nose, and earrings in their ears. God is using those to mark the sign of their adoption to him. So while I want to focus on tattoos, I did want to take a tangent to express that however people might feel about piercings, I don't think we get biblical warrant against it from this passage, that, that Leviticus passage. So let's go back to the Leviticus passage. As, you, as I read it, your mind may have already begun to, to kind of dissect it, try to take it a little bit in context. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead, I think that's important, or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. So marring your body with the blade or acquiring or placing tattoos on your body both seem to be somehow connected in worship of the dead. Right? That for the dead is, is a, a clause that is in there. Now, there's not full clarity as to what the historical practice was. No, nobody knows for certain. But most scholars think that making marks on their body or tattoos were part of the mourning process for, you know, kind of these pagan nations around the Hebrew people. It was part of this, this mourning ritual. You, we see something similar, not with tattoos, but of cutting themselves in 1 Kings, I didn't cite, I think it's 1 Kings 17, might be 16 or 18. It's one of those chapters in there. It's when Elijah has this kind of pray, prayer off with the prophets of Baal, right? 450 prophets, they, they prepare the, the, the ox, they slaughter it, and then they're not to light it on fire, but they're to call down fire from heaven, and whichever God answers, he's the Lord, if you, if you remember that story. The prophets of Baal are like crying out to Baal, oh, Baal, you know, let, hear us, bring it down. It's, it's like, I, I love the passage because it's, it's trash talk in the Bible, right? Elijah's like, what's going on with your God? Is he, is he falling asleep? They actually basically like, is he taking a dump? That's basically what it says. Is he taking a dump? Is that, is that why he's not listening to you? And then of course, you know, Elijah. And so, so they start cr- crying out more, start cutting themselves, thinking that by shedding their blood, it's going to like move Baal to act on their behalf. Elijah doesn't have to do any of that. Anyway, he, he calls it down, fire comes, consumes it. There's more to that story. That's a great story. You should preach on that sometime. Um, so I, so th- that's an example that we have in the Bible of this idea of, of marking, marring oneself to try to gain the favor of, of a deity. You know, another scholar suggests that tattoos in that age were used to indicate that the recipient was a slave, a servant to whatever deity was marked on his or her body. So there's some linkage with these markings historically with, with you know, kind of occult practices or, or pagan worship. Now, it's clear that God is prohibiting the Hebrew people from participating in these pagan or occult customs. He doesn't want them practicing the same thing that the wicked neighbors around them were were doing. But is this command 
limited to this specific use, right? Like, as long as you're not getting a tattoo of a satanic symbol on your body, you're okay, right? That, is that the specific use that God is, is, is speaking about? Or is this command meant to be understood more universally against receiving any kind of tattoo? Now, I know as another little kind of tangent, a little side um, conversation, I hear quite often people in this conversation quote 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Right. It's the passage that describes that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and so we must treat our bodies with respect. That's what people say. Now, that statement may be true, but in context, that statement has nothing to do with tattoos. Specifically, what that passage in 1 Corinthians speaks about, it's, it talks about why you shouldn't engage in extramarital affairs or why you shouldn't solicit a prostitute. That's the context of that passage. So just, just to make, if people throw that out with like the tattoo conversation, doesn't mean that, the ta- like, that they might not be, you know, it's not saying that they're wrong about tattoos, but that's not what that passage says or what it speaks about. So as we're thinking about what is the Bible, what kind of, what is the gist of the Bible when it comes to tattoos, I want to take a step back and let's look at the law, the Hebrew Mosaic law a little bit more. How do we understand the law? Because here's a, here, here's a command in scripture that people some people, some Christians want to hold to really tightly to say, as a Christian, you shouldn't get a tattoo. But why is it that we hold in Scripture, in the Old Testament, to some commands, like the Ten Commandments, right? But we let go of other requirements of God. We would all almost universally say that stealing is wrong, adultery is wrong, but we don't have trouble eating bacon. That's one of those animals that comes from a pig, which is considered unclean in, in the Old Testament, we don't, have, I, I, we don't have trouble wearing a hot polyester blend. I don't know what the blend is of this shirt, but it is soft. It feels great. You know, right? It's not pure cotton, but you know what? Did you know the Old Testament commands against that? It says that you should not wear a garment that is mixed with two different types of fabric. Right? Why do we obey some laws and ignore others? Are we just picking and choosing what we want to follow? Now, to, to try to deal with this briefly now that I've kind of set this problem, I've kind of taken a question and gone down asking a question within a question. Many scholars would say that you can break the Old Testament up into three different types of laws, three different types of categories. There's the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civic law. Now, the moral law are going to be things like the Ten Commandments, telling us how we ought to live our lives, things that are true at all times. The ceremonial law is going to be things that marked the Hebrew people off and set them apart from the nations around them. The civic law were were more case studies that were used in specific ways to govern the nation state of Israel, right? So like one of the the civic laws is like build a fence around the the roof of your house, right? If if your ox gores a sheep, this is what your repayment is. If it gores a, uh, a, a goat, here's the repayment. And it's to provide this line so that they could make judgments, right? Civic judgments, according to that. Of those three types, there's only one type of law that continues to apply to us under the new covenant of Jesus Christ, right? We don't live in the nation state of Palestine in 1000 BC, so the civic law does not apply to us. As I said before, the purpose of the ceremonial law was to set the Hebrew people apart, to showcase their holiness, uh, separate from the pagan nations around them. And so the ceremonial law would include things like the sacrificial system, 
right, how Israel was uniquely able to be in right relationship with God. Dietary restrictions, not mixing of fabrics. We see even in the New Testament that Paul says that circumcision was part of the ceremonial law, right? Circumcision, people, you know, were naked in public more, you know, bathhouses, things like that. And so it was very easy to see. It was a marker to see who belonged to the Lord. Set apart. This idea of not mixing fabrics. They were meant to be tangible expressions of why you shouldn't mix with the foreign nations around you. The ceremonial law was fulfilled through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? We can eat bacon and shrimp because Jesus declared all foods clean. He eliminated our need to obey the ceremonial law to be right with God. He eliminated those things, or he fulfilled them might be a better way to say it, to use his language. So lastly, the moral law continues to apply to us. Lying was wrong before Jesus came to earth. Lying continues to be wrong after Jesus died and rose again. Right? That moral law continues to, 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 to uh, apply to us. So going back to this Levitical command, the question is, what type of law is it? Right? If you shouldn't mark your body with that tattoo, is it moral or is it ceremonial law? Now, given the immediate context of the verse which pairs it with occult practices, I would argue that it's a part of the ceremonial law. It's giving instructions to the Hebrew people on how they should remain distinct from their neighbors. Right? Don't do the stuff they're doing. So as a result, I would argue that the Levitical prohibition does not continue to apply to Christians today. To any of you here in the building with the tattoo on your arm or your leg or your back or whatever, right? Go ahead, breathe a sigh of relief. More than likely, you haven't done anything, <laughs> you haven't done anything sinful or disobedient by receiving the tattoo. In fact, when Jesus returns to the earth, he's described in Revelation 19, 16 as sporting a tattoo. It says that on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So if you've got a tattoo, you know, I guess you could say you're in good company with Jesus. And, you know, I don't want to say, don't let anyone tell you it's because he's wearing pants and it's like marked on his pants, you know, like, I don't know, Nike or something written down there. They, they didn't really wear pants. They wore robes. The fact that it describes his thigh, it's clear that this is like a mark on his body. Anyway, but I do want to say this. I know, all levity aside, I do think that there is still a gray area that we need to address. Even though we're free to get a tattoo, as Paul says, just because there's freedom doesn't mean that it's always beneficial for us. Right? If you have or want to get a tattoo, I'd ask the questions, what, what is the content of that mark? What is your motivation for getting it? Right? Like if you want to get a Hindu god on your body because you think it looks cool, like ah, I, I might take a pass on that. Right? Just because you think it looks cool, are you potentially putting yourself in partnership with that worldview? Right, like, do you want to get Ganesha because, or, you know, you're seeking, he's the, he's the, like, god of luck or blessing in, in Hinduism. You know, are, are you seeking his representative blessings in this kind of syncretistic attitude on your financial part, portfolio? Take a hard pass. Don't do it. So to summarize this question, I still got one more. Man, we're going to be a little long. I'd suggest that while there is a clear ban on tattoos found in the book of Leviticus, I would say it was historically and culturally rooted and does not directly apply to us today. In fact, tattoos are so much more socially acceptable in our world, even than they were 30 years ago, 
I know many people who, who artistically decorate the canvas of their bodies in ways that can reflect and glorify God in the story that he's weaving. Like any Christian liberty, it should be wielded responsibly. Just because we can doesn't always mean that we should. Right? There are probably lines that we shouldn't cross. Lines, you know, we don't want to honor you know, or glorify those who stand in opposition to God. But I will continue to stand up here and say that it is our freedom in the gospel nonetheless. All right, let's, let's turn to the last question. This one's, I know, this is kind of awkward, just like moving from piece to piece. I, I don't know how to transition better than that. But this one, this one can be a little bit of a doozy. Who is Satan and what does he do? They asked it much more complicated. I just kind of boiled it down to that. So in the time that I have left, uh, I doubt that I'm going to be able to give you a fully satisfactory answer of this, but I want to try to give at least a, a scratch the surface of the biblical account about the devil, Satan, Lucifer. That's just many names, a few of the many names he has in Scripture. And I'll say this, that um, if you want a little more information, the Bible Project, you want, to, you want to go to YouTube and you just want to Google Bible Project there. It's not Google. You want to search Bible Project. They are phenomenal. They've got great videos that are very artistically done that, I mean, Tim Mackey's theology is spot on. Um, and Hebrew, he, he's, he's definitely a Hebrew scholar. Um, so they have a video that is called The Satan and Demons, and you can find it on YouTube. It's a little over six minutes long. And one of the, one of the things that they bring up in that um, is that Satan is actually not a name. It's a title. In Hebrew, it's actually preceded by an article. So as I'm, you know, received continuing to communicate this, I'm going to kind of stay in that line, and you'll hear me refer to him as the Satan, as opposed to Satan. So we first encounter this figure in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. It's the serpent, and oh man, they've got some beautiful thing about like the, where that comes from. They have a whole series on spiritual beings, but anyway, the serpent who tempts Adam and Eve to partake of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a lot of ofs in there. So I just want to read an excerpt. This is Genesis 3, 1 through 5. The serpent, the Satan, said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of, of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit in the tree that is in the midst, in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. He didn't say that last part. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So a few notes on this passage that help us understand this figure of the serpent. The Satan is a creation of God. In the beginning, there was nothing and God made everything. This includes spiritual beings, angels, Right, those who rebelled against God and are labeled in Scripture as demons. So take home number one for us is that the Satan is not an equal and opposite force from God. Too often in cultural renditions of the devil, he's elevated as this like nemesis of God. Right? Think like those of you that like comic books or movies, think like the Joker and Batman. Right? They go together like they're equal and opposite forces, one for good and one for evil. In the film The Dark Knight, um, uh, Heath Ledger's Joker makes this point about him, basically saying, like, Batman, without me, you are nothing. They complement each other, play off of one, one another. But that is not the case for the Satan. 
He is subservient to God. He is not anywhere near his equal. And that's good news for us. I heard a hallelujah in the back. That's good news for us because it means that God is not fighting tooth and nail to keep the devil at bay. God has ultimate authority over him. And we're going to circle back to that in a minute. So the next thing that we see from this passage is that Satan has, the Satan has less power than we often give him credit for. He doesn't force Adam and Eve to rebel against God. It's what he wants, but he goes about it in a very subversive way. He manipulates them. John Mark Comer puts it this way. He doesn't come at Eve with a stick, but with an idea. He says, God is holding out on you. God doesn't love you. God doesn't want your best interest, just his own. Right? The Satan is in a state of rebellion against God and wants to ruin God's world for all the other creatures as well. But he can't force them to do it. The devil takes the deficiencies that we feel in ourselves, our insecurities, and he amplifies them to try to, 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 try to accomplish his own purposes. Right? In, in the passage that we see, in the text that we, what I read, we see that Eve got, gets it wrong. God never said that they couldn't touch the tree or that they would die, just that they couldn't eat it. And Eve is already kind of has a mistruth here, and the serpent is taking that mistruth of Eve and capitalizing on it. I'm sure you've heard the slogan, the devil made me do it. Right? This mantra gives the Satan way too much power. Not everything is because of the devil. He can't make us do anything. Sure, he can exploit our weaknesses, but I think we need to take responsibility for our own rebellion against God. Right? Not push the blame off on someone or something else. We actually have more power to exercise and authority to, to you know authority to exercise over him than we give ourselves credit for. And again, I'm going to circle back at the end as well. So that's the second piece. Thirdly, the Satan is an accuser. Now, there are different perspectives as whether or not Satan is like in, in the employment of God or not. Now, we don't know the exact hierarchy of spiritual beings in the heavens, but I feel like I can say with confidence that the devil works under God's authority, but I don't believe that he works for God, if you understand the difference between that. God has his reasons that he has given the Satan a long leash to sow his chaos and rebellion, and God often uses these encounters for his glory and our growth and development, but we should never argue that when we are under attack by the enemy, that it's God who sent him to attack us. just want to make sure that that's clear. And we see this highlighted in a couple of different passages. Job chapters 1, chapter 2, right? The, the Satan is, you know, before all that stuff happened with Job, the Satan appears in the throne room of God and kind of levies a challenge at God, and poor Job is the collateral. God accepts. But note that, like, Satan needed God's permission to kind of go about this challenge, and there were still limits that God put on, on the Satan. Now, this opens up a whole lot of questions that I can't get into this morning in terms of, like, the goodness of God and the nature of evil. There's a whole branch of theology called theodicy that describes this, and I can't get there. But maybe we could circle—maybe that can be next question, FAQ Sunday. We see the Satan also come as accuser before Jesus in the wilderness, right? Encouraging him to break his fast, encouraging him to worship the Satan, right? If— if the Satan has come before these figures to accuse them, surely there will be times in our lives where he or his minions will come before us. 
and take any mistake that we have made, every wandering from God's path, and he's ready to amplify it, to use it against us. But there is hope. If the Satan stands as prosecutor, giving a litany for our crimes, God is not silent. Listen to the example of Zechariah 3, 1 to 4. In the vision, Zechariah says, he says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, standing in his right hand to accuse him. Satan's there just accusing Joshua, the high priest. He did this wrong. He did this wrong. He's a horrible person. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. I mean, this is such a beautiful metaphor for our spiritual life. Clothed with filthy garments. And and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. I'm going to take all that trash that you have built around yourself away from you and clothe you with righteousness that eventually they'll know is Jesus' righteousness. But in this passage, we see that God rebukes our accuser. He is not silent, but, but, but advocates on our behalf. When we are in Jesus Christ, we have a defense attorney who is far greater than anything the prosecution can throw against us. Right After describing the birth of Jesus in the book of Revelation, John has his experience. He says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the power in the kingdom of God has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, he who accuses them day and night before our God. Jesus cast down the accuser. Jesus shouts objection, and God sustains it. The devil has been defeated by Christ, and he gives us the authority to do the same. James 4, 7 says that when we resist the devil, he will flee from us. When we are strengthened in Christ, donning the armor of God under the power of the Holy Spirit, we can stand firmly against his wily schemes, and he has no recourse but to flee, knowing that our victory has been assured in Christ. Right? It's, why the, it's why Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians to not give the devil a foothold in our lives, because I am convinced that he cannot break in unless we give him the means to do so. I know some of you like rock climbing, Right? It's like a sheer cliff where there is no foothold. The Satan can't scramble up it. But when we, when, when we give ourselves, right, when we give ourselves to sin or our insecurities and are not founded in Jesus Christ, it's like having little carved handholds in there. Now, I know that was probably like a flyby, but just to summarize kind of the four main points about the Satan. The Satan is a creature created by God, and that means that he is not on the same playing field as God. He is not an arch nemesis. He is not an equal, but is subjected to God's authority. Secondly, he does not force us to sin. I don't know if if you guys like the MCU, um, but he's he's more like Loki. Loki in the MCU is a trickster. He's, He's far from the most powerful being, but he's subversive. He, he, he misleads, is dishonest to get his way. He takes our insecurities, our doubts, and he manipulates them for his purposes. Thirdly, his primary role is accuser, to tell us of our wrongdoings, to advocate against us before God. But thanks be to Jesus Christ that through Christ we have been granted a pardon 
and we've been given authority and strength to resist the devil. Take a little mashup of two verses, one from Peter and one from James. It says, the devil is like a roaring lion. Might seem really scary. A roaring lion seeking to devour us, but if we stand firm and strong in the Lord and resist him, he is forced to tuck his tail between his legs and run. Amen. I, I don't know. I hope these responses were informative, right? I hope these questions addressed it. Hopefully it didn't open up more questions for you. Uh, but like I said, we'll do this again, and we'll do another FAQ Sunday like this. For now, let me close us in prayer, and we'll close with some worship. Lord, we thank you for your word, even though it is at times difficult to understand because we are so far removed from the original uh, writing of it. Thank you that there is just, you have left behind these traces that we can almost go on a scavenger hunt to get to the root of passages like Leviticus, to understand about what is the place of tattoos. Should, should we see the, the, that prohibition to continue in the 21st century or not? Lord, that you have showcased the hierarchy that while we might not know everything there is to know about the devil, that you have shown us what his master plan is, to take the insecurities, to take these, the, the, these kind of boastful prides of life of ourselves and to turn them for his purposes so that we know what we're up against. Lord, thank you that you've shown us that through your son you have defeated him, that he's been cast down. doesn't mean he's not still yapping his gums every now and then, but you've given us power over him. May we stand firm in that power, knowing that you, you love us and that you'll continue to advocate for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.